Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and for your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, we just, we just love you. We want to sit at your feet. We ask that you would have your way with us now, Lord. Guide us through the simple reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn if you would to Amos chapter 1. And yes, I'll give you a minute to look for that. If you're at Psalms, go to the right. If you're at Revelation, go to the left. If you're at Matthew, go to the left. If you're at Joel, go to the right. If you're at Jonah, Obadiah, go to the left. Everybody good? Everybody there? Need a couple more minutes? Sorry. Amos. I like the background a little bit on Amos. I'll give you a little bit of background on Amos. Amos is a sheep breeder. The Hebrew word is used, it's, it's distinct from shepherd. So he's not really a shepherd, he's a sheep breeder. And uh, honestly, I don't know kind of the significance of that necessarily is a little bit hard to find. But he's kind of a little bit of a, of a um, simple man, we'll say. And uh, he's from a town called Tekoa. Anybody know what famous things happened in Tekoa? Nothing. Amos was from there. So Amos is it's about, it's a small, insignificant town about five, five miles southeast of Bethlehem. He's prophesying, so he's from the southern kingdom of Judah, prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel at a town called Bethel. And um, as opposed to many of the other prophets, uh, we, you know, we read about, like, you think about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They spent their life just, like, prophesying, prophesying, prophesying. And so the idea here is that Amos just came up from Tekoa up to the area of Bethel. Most commentators say he just prophesied probably for a short time, maybe a few weeks, and then went back home. And um, so... We'll just read just for setting. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, we don't know what the earthquake was, so don't ask when, when's the earthquake. But just a good overview, I think, uh, of kind of what we're thinking geographically. And I like, I'm going to leave, leave this up there. Okay. Um, this is really the area of Israel. So northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. If you get in your mind as you're thinking through these areas, and honestly really reading the entire Old Testament, I think this, and even the New Testament, this is helpful. And so I'll review for just a moment. The kingdom of Israel, the promised land we'll say, really encompasses sort of all of this, and some to the east side over here. This is, when you see the, the references to the 
area of Gilead. Gilead is a part of the promised land, the the land of Israel, east of uh, the Jordan River, Jordan River being right there. So that's the area of Gilead, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. But suffice to say, after the days of Solomon, King Solomon, his son Rehoboam took the throne, and it was all one kingdom, but during Rehoboam's leadership, he had pretty lame leadership, and the nation was divided. And so Rehoboam became king of the southern kingdom that was called Judah, named after the tribe of Judah, and the northern kingdom was called the nation of Israel. And really, these were the ten northern tribes, and this was the tribe of Judah, but also included the the tribe of, of Benjamin. So the southern kingdom of Judah, two tribes, their capital was Jerusalem. The northern kingdom's capital was Samaria. And um, what else do I want to say about that? Oh, yes. And significantly, the first king of the northern kingdom was a guy by the name of Jeroboam. Now, in Israel's history... You know, there's a lot of cultural history, a lot of uh, reference back to the Old Testament Mosaic law and all that, and that's how they lived. But in Israel's history, God was very clear in even as far back as the book of Exodus, I want you to come to Jerusalem. That's where I want the temple to be. I want you to come back to Jerusalem. He, He appointed three annual feasts that they were to come back to Jerusalem every year to the feast and celebrate and be kind of a nation and all that well when Jeroboam took the throne his fear was you know all these people up here three times a year they're going to go down to Jerusalem they're going to worship they're going to get sentimental and homesick and we're going to have rebellion on our hands so what he did he set up two false images two false altars, idolatrous altars, one in Bethel, which is not on this map, but it's right around here, just really not far from the border of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and one way up in the north in the tribe of Dan. And he set up these, these altars, and basically his spin was, you know, it's way too much work for you guys to go all the way down to Jerusalem. We're going to make religious service more convenient. You like the sound of that? You ever like been sold something and when you're getting the sales pitch you're like it sounds good but I just smell a rat somewhere right convenient religion should make you smell a rat okay now we try to have comfortable chairs and make it easy on you but you know bottom line is we drug you out here this morning in 10 degree weather so uh, God bless you Uh, but anyway so they have, a, they have these convenient religion that's basically established by this guy Jeroboam who turned out to be a creep now The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders during the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, that would have been the southern kingdom, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash. This is another Jeroboam. So Jewish history, you've got to get used to complicated names that all repeat themselves. So this is another Jeroboam, uh, the king of Israel during that time. And during this time is a time of great prosperity. When we read about the book of Joel, uh, we, you know, that was a time of the locust famine and all that. This is a time of great prosperity. And so, um, you know, you got these, you got this sort of setup. You got two different kingdoms. You got an altar up in Dan. You got an altar up here in Bethel. And that's where Amos is going to prophesy. During a time of convenient religion, during a time of great prosperity, 
it's really a time when people get spiritually lulled to sleep. What have we noticed in our country? Is prosperity a good thing? Well, we feel like it is, but it's not always spiritually a good thing, all right? And so I don't think it was necessarily a good thing for them. You've got to be very careful when you, uh, during times of prosperity. So, so the scene is this guy Amos, he's going up there to Bethel where sort of all the elites are, the religious elites, the academic elites, and he's a, basically a hick sheep breeder from Tekoa. So you ever, you kind of feeling it? You feeling it? You ever feel like a hick sheep? Uh, I got to be careful how I say this. Yeah. That could be a gnarly tongue twister to be on record, right? You ever feel like a, a hick sheep breeder from Tekoa? Trying to uh, preach what you think is biblical truth to a bunch of elites, right? You ever feel that way? I feel that way all the time. And uh, so don't be intimidated by him. Uh, Amos wasn't. All right? So what else is interesting? I meant to point this out. Might be too far gone. There it is. I want you to notice also, I meant, I meant to say this earlier, what we're going to talk about in the first two chapters, well, the first chapter, God is going to prophesy against the surrounding nations of Israel and Judah. Now, again, you're up there in, in Bethel, you're talking to these elites, and you're going to start prophesying. You're going to prophesy against Tyre, which is the capital city there, or not a capital, but one of the major cities of the Phoenician uh, people. You're going to prophesy against... Uh, the Philistines down here, specifically Gaza. You're going to prophesy against the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the area Aram, Damascus. That's the area of, of Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. Okay? And so Amos is going to prophesy against all these neighboring nations in the land of Bethel. And I want you to kind of picture this. You're like those guys. You're like the Israelite guys. Right? And you're like, yeah, bring it on. Start thumping Tyre. When he starts prophesying against uh, Gaza, bring it on. Those are the bad guys. When he starts prophesying against Edom, bring it on. Those are the bad guys. Moab, bring it on. Ammon, bring it on. Damascus, bring it on. And then he's going to say, oh, yeah, what about Judah? And the people in Israel are going to say, uh, bring it on. And then what he do, what's he do? And then he goes to Israel, and he's going to do that for the rest of the book. So that's kind of the overview, if you will, of where we go today. So he starts out, verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. And so he's saying, you know, it's significant that the Lord roars like a lion. The, the Lord, when the Lord brings judgment... It's loud. It can be intimidating, but it's it's a warning. It's a warning. You know, when a lion roars, a lion's really given a. I mean, it's, the lion. I don't know. In every movie I ever saw, when the lion's roaring, he's not necessarily attacking, right? He stands there and roars like he's posturing, like he's given a warning, like I'm getting I'm getting ready to attack, but he doesn't doesn't chase the. You know chase the victim down and roar at the same time necessarily. And so the Lord here, he's roaring like a lion, and he's roaring from Jerusalem. It's a reminder to those people in Bethel. 
hey, by the way, you've been worshiping in Bethel and Dan, this idolatrous stuff. You know, God still speaks from Jerusalem because that's where God prescribed that the temple should be, the worship hub should be, the festivals should be, all of that. By the way, don't, don't think that your convenient religion is adequate if it's contrary to what I said. And that's really a consistent message for us today. The Lord roars like a lion from Jerusalem. He says, for, for thus says the Lord, for three arrangements of, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its judgment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron, but I will send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, the people of Syria shall go captive to Kir, says the Lord. So first of all, we're talking about the Syrians. Their capital is Damascus. Two of their kings were Haziel and Ben-Hadad. These areas, the valley of Avon and Beth Eden, those are areas in this, in this region of, Seir, or of Syria. But he's going to say, he's going to go through these sort of poetic, if you will, uh, judgments. He says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. It's not like there were actually three or four. It's like, it's, a, it's sort of a, a, a figure speech in the Hebrew language. And basically he's saying, their sin is ongoing. You know, they've had three, now they've had four. It's ongoing, and I'm going to bring judgment. And so the idea is, you know, God has a point at which he brings judgment. God has sort of a, a tipping point, if you will. And in this case, he's, he's outlining that for the area of Damascus. So he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring judgment. And so he, each of these little prophecies that he's given is, I'm bringing judgment for three transgressions and for four because. There's a because word in each of these. Because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. And so in their prior history, remember I said this is the area of Gilead, east of the Jordan River. Uh, these people from Assyria they were very cruel and harsh to those people of Gilead. And God did not like that. God did not like that they were sort of excessively cruel to those people. Turn back, if you would, to Second Kings, before Psalms and Proverbs and Chronicles, after First Kings. Go to Second Kings chapter 10, if you would. I want to talk about this land of Gilead for a second. Now keep in mind, in this part of, of Israel's history, you know, what we have, the enemies of Israel's uh, during this time are all these like little peripheral areas. Right? These people groups, the, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Syrians, the Phoenicians. The time is going to come when we're dealing with major worldwide empires, right? See the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian Empire. It's going to become, after the time that we're reading about here, it's going to become a, 
a major world-dominating empire. They're going to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. After them is going to come the Babylonian Empire, a major worldwide do dominating empire that's going to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And so, you know, then after them comes the Medes and Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. We've talked about while we, during our study of Daniel. But for now, for our purposes now, it's almost like these little relatively small peripheral areas are just sort of troublemaking areas and they're sort of picking off areas of the, of the nation, not coming in and just totally consuming us, but, but picking us off. And I want you to notice here in 2 Kings chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Everybody there? That was a pretty resounding yes. Thank you very much. Yes. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, and Haziel, Haziel was a Syrian king, conquered them, all, conquered them in all the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. Here's why I want to, why I want to just bring this up briefly. So basically, number one, we know that nothing happens outside of God's, God's watch, right? It says here, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, really as, as sort of discipline for their sin. But the first part that gets cut off is this area of Gilead. Now, I have to highlight some of their prior history for this. Is that all right? You okay with... You okay with a little more history? Thank you. I'm begging, right? I'm begging. So, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, remember that? Moses, Pharaoh, those guys, remember that? They come out of Egypt, down here, and they wander around, wander around, wander around, and they kind of, when they come in to the promised land, they're coming up through this area here, and when they get right here, right before they go to the promised land, keep in mind, God told them where they're supposed to occupy. They're supposed to occupy the area uh, west of the Jordan River, and that was the promised land. But when they get over here, they conquered a couple kings along here, and the tribe of Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh looks around, right? They say, ooh, this is nice real estate. Why don't we just settle here, and the rest of you guys, you go on over and conquer those guys. We'll just stay here and chill, right? We want sort of the compromised place. We know that that was the promised land on the other side of the Jordan River, but we really like it here. It's very nice. Nice climate, nice for our livestock, all of that. And you may recall the story. Moses says, uh, listen, you can have that land, but don't think you're weaseling out of conquering with us. You, bring your, you leave your women and children, bring your men over uh, to the land with us, and, um, you know, whatever, uh, and if you look at the numbers, only a, uh, not a great percentage of them went. But anyway, you go over, conquer the rest of the promised land with us, and then you go back home and settle that area. And so it's kind of a picture. I believe it's, it, it gives us a lesson from the Scripture. It's a picture of... Again, the convenience. Again, the compromise. Again, you know, is there, is there, are there things in, in our lives that God would allow that's maybe not His best for us? I think there are things like that. 
Sometimes God would love. Sometimes God will just let us settle on the east side of the prom- on the east side of the Jordan River. But notice this. I think it's no coincidence that that's the first area that gets picked off by the enemy. Those areas of compromise, you might say, well, okay, I'm kind of getting away with it. It seems like maybe even God's okay with it. But those are the areas that are vulnerable. Does that make sense? And so, you know, just keep that in mind, if you will. I, I think it's a, whenever I see, whenever I think of the area of Gilead, I always think of that. I always think that's the area where, you know, Reuben, Gad, half of Manasseh, they said, hey, can we just kind of like park it here? And let me just encourage you if I can. Spiritually, we've been blessed. And there's always a temptation to say, all right, I like it here. I've been blessed. I don't need to move forward with the Lord. I'll just kind of coast. And I believe it's very possible, especially in our society, to coast spiritually. And let me encourage us not to do that. Those are the areas that are vulnerable. Those are areas where we coast. Those are the areas that tend to get picked off. And so, you know, God didn't like that. God didn't like that the Syrians were excessively harsh. And so he says, yeah, I'm going <clears throat> to bring judgment to you guys. And sure enough, God ultimately judged Syria by allowing them to be conquered by the Assyrians. And so, again, don't get confused. Syria and the Assyrians um, that later conquered them. Then verse 6, he goes on, he says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I'll send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Now, Throughout the scripture, there's reference to the Philistine people. Uh, in the early days of, of Samuel and David, they were sort of the perennial threat. You may remember that, uh, that Goliath was a Philistine. Um, and there's always, a, there's always mention of the five cities of the Philistines. They are, the three of them are up here and they're referenced in here. They are uh, Ashdod, Gaza, Ekron, Gath, and Ashkelon. So if you see those, those are references to Philistine names. And so it appears that, you know, he says, I'm going to bring judgment. And for three transgressions of Gaza, and Gaza he's, is, a, is one of the Philistine areas. He's using that as a representative of the Philistines in general. That um, because they took captivity, the captives of Israel, and delivered them to Edom. Now, their because is they captured innocent people as slaves and sold them to the Edomites. God cares how we treat people. God cares how we treat people. And so God brings judgment to uh, the Philistines uh, in this judgment because they sold Jewish slaves to the Edomites. Verse 9, he goes on. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. Again, this references the Phoenician people up here. For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not turn away punishment, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom. They sort of did the same thing. And they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood 
But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which will devour its palaces. Now they did not, so they did the same thing as the Philistines. They took Jewish slaves and sold them to the Edomites down here. And, and yet they sort of took it one step further, if you will. They did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Now, back in their prior history, the Jewish people, David and Solomon had a great relationship with the people of Tyre. You may or may not recall, when Solomon went to build the temple, he contacted his old buddy Hiram, the king of Tyre, who had been a friend of his father David's, and he said, you guys got awesome timber up there. Can, you, can I have some timber for, to build my temple? And so he said, sure enough, and they had this great kind of brilliant plan. They cut timber up there in Tyre brought it down by sea and uh, to the coastland because it's easier to transport that way. And then they brought it into uh, Jerusalem so they could build the temple. So the, the Hiram king of Tyre provided timber for uh, the building of the temple. And they had this very cordial relationship going back and forth. And so, you know, God, God thought that mattered. God thought relationships mattered. God thought that there was some loyalty that should be served to the Jewish people because of their ancient brotherhood, their covenant of brotherhood. We don't know if they had a contract necessarily, but uh, they were friends to the Jewish people, and that should matter. And so finally, uh, historians would tell us that Alexander the Great destroyed the city of Tyre, and so that uh, reference to judgment came to pass. Now keep in mind, you're the Jewish people in Bethel, worshiping your false idol, you know, up there in Bethel, there around the northern kingdom there. You're worshiping your false idol. A little bit of Judaism, a little bit of idolatry. By this time, it's so obscure, you don't know which is which, but you feel good about yourself, right? And now this prophet, the hick, from, the hick sheep breeder from Tekoa, shows up, and you're like, what are you? You're a hick sheep breeder from Tekoa. And he starts talking. And next thing, you know, he's kind of prophesied against your enemies there up north. He's kind of prophesied against your enemies down here. He's kind of prophesied against your enemies there in Phoenicia. So you're kind of warming up to this guy, right? Before it's all done, you're going to be applauding this guy. Yeah. Yeah, God, take out my enemies. Do we ever do that without looking inward? Do we feel better about ourselves when... Somebody else is worse off spiritually than we are. Got to be careful about that, right? Because God's going to make his way into the Israelite ear here in a minute. Okay? So he goes on, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom. Right there. And for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he, punished, he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman, that's an area of Edom, which shall devour the palaces of Bozrah, again, in, in Edom. So who are the Edomites? You recall Jacob and Esau, the children of Isaac, the twin brothers of Isaac, right? Uh, Esau became the father of the Edomites. And there's a great picture here. Whenever you read about Esau in the Scripture, you read, you get the vibe you're reading about, and, and it's, it's from Old Testament to New Testament. I think the last reference in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 12. Esau was a man who couldn't let it go, who couldn't let go of his anger, who couldn't let go of his bitterness, who couldn't let go of his rage, who always wanted to get even, 
There's not much good said about Esau. And again, you know, is there injustice in this world? Is there injustice in this world? Yes, there is. Is that our job to fix and deal with? Well, sometimes in a little microsphere, maybe. But by and large, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God, if somebody has wronged you, if somebody has wronged you, there's sort of the making the situation right, maybe, but there's sort of that, that, that thing where you like your neck muscles flinch up whenever you think about that guy. I mean, I know I talk about this a lot because it needs to be talked about a lot. There's that thing when, you're, when your muscles flinch up and you're like, I want to see that guy get his, right? I want him to see what gets, what, what gets coming to him, right? You know what that does? That will destroy you. That will destroy you every time. He may get his. That's not the point. God will deal with him. But we got to be very careful. And so Esau, you know, if you've been reading through the Bible plan through this year, right? You read about Jacob and Esau, right? You read that Jacob tricked uh, his father to get, get the blessing that was to be going to Esau, at least supposedly, but God knew better because God from the very beginning, from the time they were preg- that, that these boys were in the mother's womb, that God said the older is going to serve the younger, right? And so we know that that's how it was going to work out. We knew that Jacob would, you know, come out being the, the line to the Messiah, but Esau just couldn't let it go. He couldn't let it go. When we choose to hold on to hatred, unforgiveness, it becomes bitterness, and that always destroys us. So much so that these guys are literally taken slaves. So remember we said the, the Philistines, they're in Gaza, and the people up in Tyre, they're selling Jewish slaves to the Edomites. So shame on the people of Tyre, shame on the people of Gaza, but shame on the people of Edom for participating in that. And so we've got to be very careful. That's what bitterness does. That's what bitterness does. Bitterness has really no end point until we deal with it. Verse 13. Is this fun so far? Very good? Is it hot in here? Verse 13. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity. He and his princes together, says the Lord. So the people of Ammon right here, they wanted to enlarge their territory. So they are being unusually cruel and really horrific to their treatment of the people here in Gilead. Now, who were the Ammonites? Remember Lot? Abraham's nephew, Lot, okay? He had uh, Lot escaped when he escaped Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know the whole story of all that. He escaped, and and he had two daughters, uh, and it's an ugly situation that's uh, not for this time, but uh, two sons were born, Ammon and Moab. They were, the, they were the heads of the Ammonites and the, or the fathers of the Ammonites and the Moabites. And so they were, they were constant enemies of the, the people of God, the Jewish people. And so people of Ammon, they, 
They wanted to uh, enlarge their territory. They were covetous, and they were cruel. They ripped open pregnant women in order to do that. And so they also were ultimately conquered by the Assyrians. Chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four. Again, Moab was the brother of Ammon. He said, I will not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound. And I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. So the Moabites, uh, that was the final Gentile nation that's going to be cursed here. Uh, and in their case, it's because of the cruelty and their lack of respect for the, for the dead king of Edom. Well, wait a minute, I thought you said the Edomites were the bad guys. Even the bad guys need to be treated with respect. Even the bad guys need to be treated with respect. So, the Edomite king deserves respect as a human being and let God execute the vengeance on him. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. So now we've, we've talked about all the peripheral nations. Now we're moving to Judah. For three transgressions of Judah and for four. I will not turn away punishment. It's punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandment. Their lies lead them astray. Lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. So what you notice here, by the time we get to, you know, these people would be listening to all this prophecy against the surrounding nations. They'd probably be high-fiving each other, applauding each other for, you know, what Amos is prophesying against all these other people. And now they move into the people of Judah. And what is the why? Was it because of cruelty and violence and all this kind of stuff? No. Catch this. It's because they despised my law and have not kept his commandments. And their lies lead them astray. They despise the law of the Lord. What regard do we have for the word of God? What regard do we have for the word of God? These people of Judah, they despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. So we don't obey God's word just because it's a religious exercise. We do it because it reflects the, the respect and the awe that we give to God. And they trusted in lies. They trusted in lies. What's the source of truth? The source of truth is the scripture. So often we have this idea sometimes that a simple departure from the word, believing the lies of the world, is no big deal. Because we feel like we've got to uh, talk with uh, some cultural relevance to the world, right? It is a big deal. God lumps that together with all the heinous acts of the Gentile nations. Luke twelve forty eight says this. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Have we been given much spiritually? Yes, then much is required. We've been given the word of God, Right? We've been given truth. We've been given absolute truth. And we need to not be led away by the lies of the world. Can I tell you this? We live in a world. Catch me now. Focus with me. We live in a world where truth 
is being flagrantly redefined. And I want to be as sensitive as I can. I want to be as sensitive as I can. But it is not loving for me to let you believe a lie. It is not loving for me to, be believe, for me to let you believe a lie. I was talking, we had some friends in town this week um, from Saudi Arabia. Long story, but anyway. Uh, and in, in, I think in, in their culture, we're talking about medical care and stuff like that. In their culture, they said, they're asking me this, as a doctor, if somebody's got cancer, for example, do you tell them? I'm like, well, of course. Well, that could be stressful to them. Yeah. And if it's stressful to them, that adversely affects their mental health, and you could be doing them more harm than good if you tell them the truth. And so we had to kind of unpack this a little bit, right? I'm like, well, first of all, if they've got a bad disease and they're not treating it or not doing anything with it, they deserve the respect of it. I mean, even if they're going to die from that disease, they deserve the opportunity to get right with God, get right with their, you know, whatever relationships, what, whatever they need to do, right? There's a way to die with dignity. And there's just, I mean, it, and it goes, obviously, on eternal things. We do a disservice by believing and propagating a lie just so we can be hip or cool or relevant or not old-fashioned or whatever like that. But let me tell you this. Truth is truth and lie is lie. The people of Judah, their lies lead them astray, the Bible says. We can't let lies lead us astray. Does that mean we're not loving? No, I think it means we are loving. I think it means we are loving. Does it mean we're forcing people to change? You know what? My Bible says we're all being conformed into the image of Christ, right? I come in here wanting to be changed. We all need to come in here being wa wanting to be conformed into the image of Christ. Honestly, that should be loving. And I think we are quickly living in a world where, tr honestly, people are hungry for the truth. You know, if you had cancer, and I say, no, you're all right. I'm your doctor, right? You come into my office. Do I have cancer? You know, I got all the signs and symptoms and this and this and this, and I say, no, you're, you're good. Don't worry about it. What are you going to do? You're going to get sicker. And sooner or later, you're going to come to the reality that I lied to you. And then where are, you? where are we? I didn't do you any favors. And so their lies lead them astray. Be careful of the warning of the nation of Judah. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, now we're into the northern kingdom of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. And so now he's turned to the northern kingdom, and their because statement is social injustice, immorality, and idolatry. 
and they should have known better regarding all of those things. Verse 9, yet I, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. Remember when they went into the promised land? He destroyed their enemies on their way in, whose height was like the height of the cedars. The Amorites were, were like Goliath-type people. And he was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought, uh, brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the, pe the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy, but I am weighed down by you as a cart of sh full of sheaves is weighed down. Is, is weighed down. And so God reviews their history. He's reminding them that they should know better. Should we know better than to be led away by lies? Yes, we should. Why? We have the truth. And they should know better, and we should know better. Sometimes when God calls us into account, He reminds us of our history. In their case, you know, I, I brought you guys out of Egypt... I mean, how many times does he say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who brought you out of the land of Egypt with a mighty, you know, with, a, with an outstretched arm? And in this case, he says, I'm the, I'm the God who, who destroyed the Amorite before you, whose height was the height of the cedars. He was strong as the oaks, and yet I destroyed him for you guys. I brought you into the promised land. I, I blessed you. I took care of you. And you should realize that. God has blessed us. And we need to respond with thanksgiving. Verse 14. Therefore flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. And so this is their future. You know, he says... Uh, punishment's coming and sure enough to the northern kingdom of Israel the Assyrians came 722 BC and pretty much wiped them out and their history was never the same and so yeah all these things come to pass so God's judgment if we look at it one way seems very harsh I understand that but, you know, God is God of justice. Somehow God is still in control. He sets right, right, and deals with wrong. But he gives his warning. All these prophecies are warnings. The book of Revelation is a warning to those of us today that, you know, hard times are coming to those that, that continually insist on rejecting the word of the Lord. And so... I think it would help us to see it in the context of the heart of God. The heart of God is love. First and foremost, he's a God of love. And so he warns his people when he, when he gives the warning that justice is coming, that judgment is coming, and he warns his people accordingly. So let's not be people that are like the Syrians, the Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, or even the Israelites.
right? We need to be people who simply trust the Lord, who simply rely on his word by the power of his Holy Spirit, do what it says, and recognize his goodness along the way. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you are so good. We thank you that you have given us such rich history. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. And Lord, we are thankful. We're thankful that you have given us a chance to be your children, knowing that we don't deserve it. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to cling to truth. Help us to obey your word. Help us to be gracious with people. Help us to not be bitter. Help us to live lives that bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.